Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Let's read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. This is the word of God and it's eternally true. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. You want me to keep reading? Any of you impatient for me to keep reading? You want me to start now? Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've been in this chapter, which is known as the love chapter, for a number of weeks now, and we've seen that the whole chapter can be broken into three sections. First, verses 1 to 3, where we're taught that love is superior because all other gifts, spiritual gifts, are nothing without love. Then, verses 4 to 6, love is superior because it is the summary and the seedbed of all the virtues of godliness, of all the works that the Holy Spirit does 
in a man. And then third, verses 8 to 13, love is superior because love will last forever. Now, beginning with verse 4, we have come to a series of statements made by the Apostle Paul declaring what love is not. And there are seven things that love is not, according to our passage. Love is not jealous. It doesn't envy. And envy, like all of the things we look at, needs to be looked at most closely when it comes to our own homes. And so this is a great series for the holidays because we can claim that we love mankind. You know, we had the love Bloomington thing. But, you know, you can fool yourself about the love you have for large groups of people. But you can't fool yourself about the love you do or do not have for your mother, your father, your older sister or brother, for your wife. And you can't fool your wife, except in some cases you can, and that's too bad. And so with every one of the negatives and the positives that are said about love, the laboratory that we need to scrutinize them in is the laboratory of our home. Whether we're single and have roommates, married, grandparents, little children, the test of a man's character is the way he lives with his loved ones. And so the first thing I want to say today is, so how was your week? <laughs> We've been studying love week after week, right? And so this last week, what you've noticed is that whatever we're preaching on at church, it just oozes out of you during the week, right? So we've been preaching on love, so you've been patient, you've been kind, you haven't envied anybody, you haven't kept track of wrongs, right? You've been apologizing, right? Thanksgiving is a hard week. We had 37 in our house. And then, Little Fiona, who wasn't going to be helped by her mother or her father, was put in one of those mind-boggling round things. And she proceeded to jump up in the air and down, and every time she came down, it went bang, bang, bang. And then, to make it worse, surrounding her were all kinds of noisemakers mounted to the thing. 37 people... And there's Fiona making enough noise for 35 of them. And she's right in the middle of everything. If she'd been outside in the garage, I wouldn't have minded. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I'm very calm because that's who I am. And I, you, you, know, you remember in all, in the, all in the Family, you remember what Archie used to say to, to his wife. You know, stifle it, Edith, stifle it. So I sat in there and tried to stifle it. And after a few minutes, it weren't to be stifled no more. I got up, I lifted Fiona out of the round thing. <laughs> and then I picked up the round thing and I took it back to the garage and climbed up the ladder and put it at the very top of the shelves 
where it had been. So how was your last week? Were you patient? Were you kind? Were you proud? Did you brag? Did you keep track of wrongs? Uh-huh. Remember, the point of studying Scripture is not for you to have a helpful thought for the week. The point of Scripture is for you to flee to Jesus because you see it's hopeless for you. And then to become more like him out of your grief and faith. So if you have completely blown it this last week, it's good that we're going to read 1 Corinthians 13 again because you're a sinner. And there's nothing that will show your sin more than studying what love is. Remember, Jesus summed up the whole law and the prophets with you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And listen, you don't know how to love your neighbor. You just don't know how to love your neighbor. And I don't say that to insult you. I say that because as far as the heavens are above the earth, so high are God's thoughts above our thoughts, his ways above our ways. So if you think that you're a good lover, you're not. Not at all. It's, all that needs to, to happen is to tease out which particular sins against love are your sins. All right? And your sins might look better than other people's sins against love. On the other hand, your sins might look worse than other. But it doesn't make any difference. Your comparison is not the rest of the class, but your comparison is the character of God. And when you see how completely you fail, this is the point of Christian worship. The point of Christian worship is for you to get rejiggered so that you stop believing the lies on Facebook and the lies in the media and the lies that your wife tells you. I mean, some of the worst lies today are told by wives. You realize that. Love is not jealous. It doesn't envy. So can I give you a couple of illustrations from my life that will help you to think about whether you're jealous and envy. When I come down in the morning, I have not read my Bible. And I walk into the living room, and there my wife is reading her Bible. And because I'm so godly, I'm filled with joy that my wife is reading her Bible, right? No. I resent her. Why? Well, because she didn't put her makeup on. I wish it was something so spiritual. No, I resent her because she's reading her Bible. Now, why would I, a pastor, resent my wife for reading her Bible? Is it because my wife is making a big show to me? No. You don't know my wife, but no, that's not why. Why? Why do I resent my wife? Why am I aggressive? I mean, there is a little bit of, actually quite a bit of aggression when I just get up in the morning. You know, morning is not my thing, all right? But why would I resent my wife reading her Bible? 
because I'm envious, because I'm jealous. I'm jealous of another person's godliness, especially when that person every day meets me with her Bible open, reading her Bible. Okay, so that's one illustration. I don't know if you have anything similar to it, but I want you to think about yourself, not about me. Here's another one. When I was a young kid, my father was humbug at Christmas every year. Bah, humbug. You know what that means? It's somebody that despises Christmas, and my father despised Christmas. Why? Well, because back in the 60s, my brother died a few days after Christmas because he went out sledding Christmas afternoon, and then he had an accident, and he, he went into intensive care unit, and then he died. And so my, my father was not happy at Christmas. He lost his oldest son at Christmas, and it wasn't a fun time at our house. So I can remember a few years later, we had our, our, I believe, my aunt and uncle and their kids at our house. And I had told my mother that I wanted to get, I wanted a, uh, I wanted a ski jacket. And when I opened up my gift, it was like a hunter's quilted thingamabugger vest kind of thingamabugger. And it was not a ski jacket at all. It was ugly, really. It wasn't the only time my mother gave me, an, when I moved to Bloomington, she gave me a woman's sweater one Christmas. <laughs> and we knew it was a woman's sweater because it had huge shoulder pads. <laughs> and then she, she said to me on the phone a little later, now you better wear that gift that I gave you. I did wear it once while the family howled, <laughs> you know. And she was in her right mind at that time. I still don't know what was going on with her. So anyhow, she gave me the ski jacket, ski jacket, quoted vest, ugly. And uh, so I went down in my bedroom and I was crying. Why? Well, I was crying because I was jealous of the gifts that my cousin got. My mother found out I was crying, came down there and asked me why I was crying, and I lied to her. And I don't remember what the lie was, but it was a lie. I wasn't going to tell my mother I was crying because my cousin got a better gift than I did. I mean, even little kids know enough not to do that, you know. Love is not jealous. Love does not envy. It doesn't envy. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. It doesn't brag and it's not arrogant. I know a lot of large families from around the country and pastors of churches with large families and this last week, I was driving somewhere, and I listened to a guy with a British accent. I think his name is Mark Stein. I'm not sure. He was filling in for Rush Limbaugh. And it was so helpful spiritually, and I'm being serious. Because he was talking about how every ruler, when he assumes the throne, whether it's the White House or the, you know, Buckingham Palace, he thinks he's above the law. And the people, he was saying, have to make sure that those that are in authority over them don't violate the law. 
they have to be reminded that they are subordinate to the law just like everybody in the kingdom is, right? Now, why was that helpful spiritually? Well, immediately I began to think about conservative churches and large families. And I began to think how many fathers of large families elicit, <laughs> suck out of their wives and children every ounce of, uh, of ego stroking that they desire. Have you ever noticed this, that large schooling or large families often certainly homeschooled or Christian schooled. You ever noticed how many of these families, the father is treated like a king? And the father is above the law. Have you ever noticed this? And you say, what do you mean? He speeds? And I say, no, I'm not talking about him speeding. I'm saying that if he is ever rebuked by the elders of his church, he just leaves the church. And so his wife flatters him, he brags to his children and his wife, she flatters him, then she goes out of the home and talks about how she has the most godly husband on the face of the earth. And that's what Mark Stein was talking about. He was talking about kings who think they're above the law. And so they don't submit to anyone. They're above the law. And many of us run our homes this way, where our children know that we are not humble before the word of God, we are not humble before anyone, and our wife goes around developing the cult by talking to her friends about what a godly husband she has. It's a bunch of bunk. And so listen, it may be that you have a very sophisticated way of bragging, which is that you have lots of children, and you run your home like a kingdom, and you never have to open your mouth about how great you are because your children and your wife tell everybody how great you are. And listen, that is on you, Father. That is on you. You, if you have proud children and a proud wife, they're proud because you're a braggart and you're arrogant. Don't tell me any child of this church is proud and that it's an anomaly. <laughs> no, it is your character, Father. Your children are an unerring testimony to your character. And you might never open your mouth bragging at all, but if your children are proud... You've said everything you need to say to other people. Love is not jealous, it doesn't brag, it's not arrogant, it doesn't act unbecomingly, it's not froward. The man that loves doesn't jump into a situation sure that he is God's gift for the situation. Now, honestly, what I would like to see in this church is a few more men who are froward. A few more men that will jump to address a situation. Okay? That's what I'd like to see. 
And, you know, somebody might say, well, you're froward, aren't you? And you say, well, yeah, but I'm not going to learn if I'm not froward for a while. It takes a while to get wisdom. All right, so froward means that you think you're God's gift to the world, and whatever opinion you have, you should jump in, give your opinion, right? Right? Right before worship, somebody was talking to me about a discussion in the family on Facebook. Now, this is truly perverse. We should never let family members talk to each other on Facebook. <laughs> it just is a non-starter. Why do we process all our hatred and animosity on Facebook, you know? But that's where it goes, you know? It, it, water finds its level. But think of the young people on Facebook that have opinions about things that anybody five years older than them knows they're completely ignorant and foolish about. As a matter of fact, with young people, you know, everybody flatters them and tells them their opinion matters. But it doesn't. It really doesn't. Because when they speak, you know they're never speaking for themselves. They're speaking what they have been told to speak. Right? Love is not forward. It doesn't act unbecomingly. Love knows its place. Its station. You remember what it says about Job in 29? It says that when he came into the gate, if I remember correctly, it says the young people covered their mouths and the older men stood. Love is not froward. Love does not seek its own. Last night I went to bed and when I got into bed, I usually go to bed earlier than Mary Lee on Saturday nights, and when I went into bed, I lay there, and I remembered that I had not seen Mary Lee for an hour. And then I remembered that I had been listening to Mary Louise, our, our granddaughter, cry for that time. You know, it didn't come to me when it was going on. But when I got in bed, I remembered that, and then Mary Lee came in, and I said, well, where have you been? I knew where she'd been. She'd been downstairs rubbing Mary Louise is back to try to get her to be quiet. And then I asked Hannah this morning, I found out that Hannah rubbed her for two more hours, three hours. Let me tell you something. Those men that take care of Bob, Doug and Carol, when they take care of Nathan, There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more beautiful. Christians don't patronize women. Christians worship women. Feminine women. You think of the joy it gives me to see my son-in-law Lucas and, and Hannah and Mary Lee caring for Mary Louise. Finally, Mary Louise has started smiling really smiling. And we hit a milestone Thursday night after worship when she came to my arms and didn't cry. <laughs> Love does not seek its own. It's not self-seeking. 
It's the very definition of motherhood. It's the very definition of motherhood. A mother gives up her life for her child. A couple of times I've made a mistake in, in thinking that Mary Lee loved Mary Louise. But Mary Lee sets me correct. She corrects me right away. And she says, no, I don't love Mary Louise. I love Hannah. Now, it's kind of a joke. She doesn't really say it like that. But I, I lose sight of the fact that Mary Louise is Hannah's child, but Hannah is Mary Lee's child. Are you with me? And this is motherhood. Mary Lee loves Mary Louise. Don't get me wrong, but Mary, Mary Lee, it, she has not yet bifurcated from Hannah. <laughs> she is, Hannah's not yet individuated from Mary Lee. In other words, she's a mother. And what does it say? It says love is not self-seeking. It doesn't seek its own. Number six, love is not provoked, easily angered. <coughs> like my little daughter, Fiona, in that bouncer. Bang, 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 bang. Love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. Doggone it. Love is not provoked. And then number seven, love does not take into account a wrong suffered keeps no record of wrongs or does not nurse a grudge. This past week, um, I got a text from somebody asking, um, asking questions about this point in the sermon last week, and I want to read to you a couple texts from Isaiah and Jeremiah. In Isaiah 43:25, we read, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. This is God speaking. And then he says, and I will not remember your sins. I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31, 34, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And I, I've, I've said this several times, and I'll probably say it a hundred more times before I'm gone. But if there's one thing that defines our culture today, it's keeping a record of wrongs. We are perfect at keeping track of who's done us wrong. And this can go on for years. And often... Wrong was done. Love does not keep track of wrongs. And then the one I want us to focus on this week, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Now what does this mean in verse 6? when we're told, again, that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Well, unrighteousness can be translated sin. Um, iniquity. King James Version translates it iniquity. And so, love doesn't take happiness in sin and iniquity. 
okay? Now, what does that mean that it doesn't take happiness, that it doesn't delight in sin? It would be easy for us to think of this from the book of Psalms. Uh, Let me read it. It's Psalms 36, starting with verse 1. This is David. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. So sin speaks to the ungodly in his heart. What's the heart? It's the seat of the affections. So sin speaks to the heart, to the seat of the affections. Sin owns our heart, all right? Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So if you cuddle up with sin in your heart, you have no fear of God because he sees your heart. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Isn't that interesting? On his bed, he plans evil. Why? Well, because when you're lying in bed trying to go to sleep or trying to get back to sleep, your heart cuddles up to things. It can cuddle up to your new car. It can cuddle up to your garden. And it can cuddle up to sin. Love doesn't keep track of wrongs, and it doesn't rejoice in sin. But rather what? Well, it rejoices in the truth. Again, verse 6, rejoices with the truth. Truth is not just not lying here. Uh, in John, 3 John 1, 3, we read, For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. So truth stands for a life of righteousness. So iniquity and righteousness. And so the wicked man who doesn't fear God cuddles up to sin. The righteous man, the man who loves, cuddles up to righteousness. That's the thing that he delights in. Now, the obvious question is, again, we're not having a helpful thought for the week. The obvious question is, do you delight in sin or do you delight in righteousness? What do you delight in? I mean, really delight in. You know the old statement, no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. Okay? What are your pleasures? And do they show that you belong to God or do they show that you are a worldling? That you love this world and the things of this world? Do you love the things of God or do you love the things of this world? Do you love the approval of worldlings or do you love the approval of God? 
Who do you want to approve of you? Now, it's very easy to see if you're not yourself. Anybody else can look at you and tell you what you, what you live for, what your approval, what you want approval for, right? Even with children, it's very easy to see whether children want the approval of God or the approval of other people. But let's take it back to the elemental level of do you love lies or do you love the truth? And there ain't no middle ground. There's no demilitarized zone where nobody's going to shoot at you. Today, there is no neutral zone. The world is hell-bent to remove shame from homosexuality. The world hates homosexuals, hates them, and wants them to go to hell. And so the world is removing all the boundaries God's put up to protect us from homosexuality, from desiring to bed other men. And so God says to me, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't want that, do you? And I go, no. And then God says, it's shameful. And I go, yes. And all those things are helpful to me in keeping me from falling into the sin of homosexual intercourse. God says that the effeminate man will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is helpful to me to not go around and talk with a lisp and to have a limp wrist and to have no moral fiber and to not take responsibility for a wife and children. That's effeminacy. God says the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And effeminate men never defend the truth of God in the public sector. They just don't have any desire to take a stand against the lies of Satan. And so again, do you love the truth or do you love lies? And being uh, Weasley, what we'll say is we'll say, oh, I, I don't love lies, but I... I, I don't think we should beat up on homosexuals. And I say, okay, you love lies. And you say, why? Do you think we should beat up on homosexuals? I say, no, but you're worried that you might. And, and you're dead. That's it. You're all, you're, you're all done. Because what you've done is you, you're, you're now cuddling up to the main place that our culture is determined to remove the Christian mind from you. You're worried that people will see you insensitive and unkind and unfeeling and intemperate and hater and all this stuff. And listen, if your goal is to have the approval of the world, you will be like every American Christian today. You will fall all over yourself showing everybody that some of your best friends are homosexuals. And you're a liar. The thing I've noticed about people that say some of their best friends are homosexuals is they have no friends who are homosexuals. You say, oh, no, no, I work with them. We get along great. And I say, so have you warned them that God is a judge of all the earth and that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that to face the judgment and that God himself has said that those men who lie with other men will not enter heaven? Have you said that? Well, no, I mean, I'm doing pre-evangelism. Oh, so when does the evangelism come? Well, I, I maybe don't have the same definition of evangelism as you do. And I say, 
How about this? When Peter got done evangelizing on the day of Pentecost, what was the response of the crowd? Everybody said, what must we do? In other words, we're hell-bent. I don't know what to do. And Peter's response was, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. How is anybody going to know to flee to Jesus if you refuse to point out the corruption of their generation and you refuse to speak of the holiness of God and his wrath against sin. You want to know whether you love the truth instead of lies? The next time you're with this homosexual that you say as a friend, you speak to the homosexual about Sodom and Gomorrah and what God did to them and why. And then say to them, now listen, this is the warning that you have to take. And then talk to them about the warning you have to take for your fornication, for your pornography, for your adultery, for your who knows what else, all right? But if you love people tempted by a sin, you will work hard to restore to that sin the shame that the world is hell-bent to remove from the sin. Because shame helps us run from sin. Here's the wonderful thing. The wonderful thing is when we hate lies, remember, that's what it says here, love hates lies. Okay? It doesn't rejoice in lies. Okay, if you don't rejoice in lies, the wonderful thing is you're zealous. You're intense about trying to expose lies and correct them. Do you understand this? You can't love the truth and be silent when truth is being torn out of the fiber of our society. And you say, well, there's a lot of truth besides homosexuality. I say, yeah, 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 yeah. Some of your best friends are homosexuals and a lot of truth other than homosexuality. This is not the battle we chose. The church didn't go around saying, hey, let's fight over homosexuality. From the time I became ordained to the ministry in 1983, I have never stopped having my denomination, my friends telling me to chill out about homosexuality. Do you realize that? It has defined my entire ministry. That is the one truth of scripture more than any other truth that pastors and elders I have known have been attacking And so now we live in a society that has convinced the conservative Christian church to be precious about homosexuality. We all walk around saying some of my best friends are homosexuals. And that, my friend, shows that you do not love the truth. You love the approval of men. That's why you're so intent on condemning Pastor Bailey for what he said in his sermon, what he writes on his blogs, and showing yourself to be what? Excuse me, but Uriah, heap. You know, the sneaky dude who's always trying to flatter everybody. And that's the definition of effeminacy. And God says the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nobody is going to be thankful for the dude in the trenches that can't bring himself to point his gun at the enemy and shoot. Right? And yet that's the major quality of godliness in the church today that, you know, we don't have guns because we don't like guns. 
and we don't point them, and we certainly don't pull the trigger. You have the Word of God. You don't need me. You have the Word of God. It's as plain as plain can be. The Word of God says that men lying with men and men and women lying with animals and men and women lying with their relatives are the same. There's no difference. They list them in parallel construction. So if you want to know how to be helpful to the people you love who are your neighbors in a day that loves lies and hates the truth, what you need to do is begin. The minute somebody talks about homosexuality, you just say, yeah, bestiality. And they go, no, I wasn't talking about bestiality. I was talking about homosexuality. You say, yeah, I know, but God says that they're equivalent. Or say adultery. Because even adultery doesn't have, it doesn't play in Peoria the way homosexuality does today. Listen, either the church begins to love God's truth or there will be no faith on earth. My father, before he died some 30 years ago, repeatedly quoted Jesus saying, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? And you, all of us can talk about how we have faith, and I say, show it to me. Show it to me. Show it to me. There is no reason why Jesus should have had to be a witness to the truth and you get off scot-free and you can act as if you don't know the truth. And let me tell you, you want to see why you act as if you don't know the truth? You just try speaking at a family reunion. And you see the abuse you take if you speak up. I was talking to a man just before worship and he was saying that if he said to his aunt, that he wanted her to pray for him, that he would have love for homosexuals. He said she'd get the wrong idea about it. And you know what I'm talking about. She would think that he was praying because he had sort of maybe latent homosexuality himself. If not that, maybe aggression against homosexuals. Maybe he's a Republican. Come on. That's not why he was asking for prayer. It's because he finds that his heart is cold towards the souls of sexual sinners. And let me tell you, there's almost nobody in this church that the same can't be said about. Some of you don't have cold hearts about sexual sin because you were raped when you were little girls. And that's another sin that's listed right with homosexuality. So what, we're going to all turn into pedophiles now? And we're all going to talk about how some of our best friends are pedophiles? It's ridiculous. The people that keep me strong in preaching this way and have for well over 20 years now are the people who have repented of homosexuality. <laughs> you know, I really don't care what you think of me because I know what they think. And they're so grateful when I refer to it as sodomy. You know what they tell me? They say, that's so helpful to me because it makes me ashamed of my desires. 
Now here's an idea. The godly man will be ashamed of his sinful desires. So if you love homosexuals, shame them for their desires. And you go, oh, no, no, you're telling us to send them back into the closet. I say, would you wake up, please? Do you know what the language of going into the closet is all about? It's like, we will not be ashamed anymore. We will live out. And I'm telling you, shame is helpful to me with adultery. Come on, men. Can any of you who are married agree with me? Have you ever thought about the idea of what you would look like in front of your children? And hasn't that been helpful? How about if all of us is adulter, prospective adulterites, how about if we all come out of the closet and tell our wives that we, we're a gay adulterer? I mean, come on, it doesn't work. Why are we precious about this sin? And the reason is we live in a culture that hates God and is in rebellion against God on all sexual matters. And now it's homosexuality. And if we don't begin to testify to God's truth, there will be no faith on earth. Yeah, all of us will be in church Sunday morning going, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, just like the Israelites. And there will be no faith. We'll all have our conversion experience. We'll all have coffee cups and Bibles open. And we'll have women's prayer groups and women's Bible studies and, and men's David's mighty men. And all the men will be effeminate. And we'll think we have faith. We have no faith. No faith whatsoever. Because why? Because this is a description of a Christian. The Christian is the man who what? Verse 6. The Christian is a man who does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. No man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. If you want the approval of this world and you run around talking about some of your best friends being homosexuals and you're successful in never being accused of being a hater, you're worthless. You're absolutely worthless. You're no help to the kingdom of God and you're no help to your neighbor. You don't love your neighbor. Do you understand? This is just very plain. Love rejoices in the truth. Love takes it personal when, when one's father is attacked. And this entire world is attacking your father, your heavenly father, God. And so do you have faith or don't you? Do you have faith to speak the truth, because why? Because why? Come on. Because why? Do you have faith to speak the truth? Because why? Because you love the truth. Do you love the truth? Right about now, all of you wish I'd go back and 
start preaching on love keeps no record of wrongs, don't it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> because that would be much easier. But, but listen, people, we live in a day of lies. And the lies are most intense at the point of education. Everything's reduced to making good choices. And nobody cares what God says. And God says that men who lie with men, women who lie with women, that men who are effeminate, soft men, hard women, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is scripture. And so if you really do love homosexuals, do you, I was telling some visitors after the first sermon this morning, do you know how we started kissing one another as men? You, you've noticed that in this church, the men kiss each other. If you haven't noticed that, we do. And do you know why we started that? Well, partly because there are a number of commands in Scripture that say, greet one another with a holy kiss. But you know, the other thing is, because having homosexual people that are repenting of homosexuality in our church, you just think to yourself, what does a man who is tempted by homosexuality need? And what I think he needs is a fat old man kissing him. Because there's nothing erotic about it. Things can't be confusing. This is purity. This is safety. When Pastor Bailey kisses you, now that's safe. <laughs> it is a dagger in the heart of all the lies of our culture. Because, of course, all the conceited idiots who spout the rhetoric that they're taught by our culture would look at me kissing another man and it would be does not compute. You know, because I have to be a homophobe, I have to be a hater, I have to be all this stuff. And then you come in the church and you see men kissing each other and you go, oh, wait a second. I was once in a, in a Christian school that was extremely liberal and a teacher that knew me well was teaching the class and I explained to the students, this was in the, this was in, uh, well, I won't identify it, but these kids were pretty rough kids, okay, and high school, and I, I, I told them how in our church we make a habit of the men kissing each other, and they're like, what? And their teacher was a Wheaton grad. And so I said, uh, yeah, we do that. And they said, why? And I said, well, we want to de-eroticize male relationships. <laughs> and you should have seen the Wheaton grad. It was pretty funny. It was like, what on earth are you talking about? The way we touch each other is a witness to the truth. the way we relate to each other, the way that we argue. We argue in such a way that nobody can be confused that we're Republicans. The good thing now is it doesn't have anything to do with Trump or Clinton. They're both on the bandwagon of sexual liberation, as they would call it. But Christians are the salt of the earth. Christians are lighty. You know, like that big honking thing Caleb Hess put up on the building at night? You've seen it? Now that's a lighty light. I don't know how many lumens this is. Christians are like that. When we go out into the world, there's something different about us. 
Nobody suspects that we've given money to any political candidate. Everybody knows we're going to take our lumps and not retaliate in anger. But there's something about the way we speak and the way we live that is absolutely unpredictable. Unpredictable, just like our master, Jesus Christ. One last time. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. I want to close by reading a couple things from Martin Luther on this. You remember I told you at the beginning of the series that Martin Luther said this chapter is particularly for pastors to point out our hypocrisy. And so he says here, he says, false teachers are malicious enough to prefer to hear above all things that some other does wrong, commits error, and is brought to shame. Pastors more, false pastors more than anything else want to hear that somebody else has made a mistake in doctrine, has fallen into sin. That's what we love more than anything when we're false pastors. And then he says, and their motive is simply that they themselves may appear upright and godly. Such was the attitude of the Pharisees toward the publican in the gospel. Listen, I know that if you love the truth and you witness to the truth and you show your love for it in, in the world, I know everybody's going to accuse you of being self-righteous. Satan has a million lies he can tell you to just shut you up. That's the goal. But honestly, it'll be so much more attractive if you speak up and testify to the truth than if I do. God's given us lots of different gifts. And if I can strengthen you here to do your work there, that's how the church works. You know, the steam in the steam engine doesn't come out at the, at the railroad track, right? There's a lot of things in between the steam and the drivers. And so let's love by rejoicing in the truth. Listen to uh, the words of Lohauer Roser Blooming, which I think given Nate's torment and Doug and Carol and our seeing ourselves as we are as we study this chapter. Lo, how arose air blooming from tender stem hath strung. Do you feel like a tender stem? Of Jesse's lineage coming as men of old have sung. It came a floweret bright amid the cold of winter when half spent was the night. Isaiah twas foretold it, the rose I have in mind. With Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind. To show God's love aright, she bore to men a savior. When half spent was the night. The shepherds heard the story proclaimed by angels bright, how Christ, the Lord of glory, was born on earth this night. To Bethlehem they sped, and in the manger found him, as angel Harold said. Now, this is the reason, listen to, listen to this verse. 
This flower, and you know it's speaking of Jesus, right? Jesus is the rose. This flower whose fragrance, tender, with sweetness fills the air. Isn't that beautiful about Jesus? His smell to us is sweet. Listen, a lot of you don't care about gardening. And I'm sorry I didn't say it in the first service, but I'm going to say it to you now. Every single one of you that has the tiniest plot of land, buy a rose and plant it. Buy a rose and plant it and smell the rose. What a beautiful testimony when it's a bud of, of the tenderness of God in Jesus Christ. The smell, the, the opening up, it's such a beautiful testimony to Jesus. This flower whose fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air dispels, gets rid of, with glorious splendor, the darkness everywhere. <laughs> True man, yet very God, from sin and death he saves us and lightens every load. The only thing that's going to help you love the truth is to love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, who cares what they think about you? Oh, Savior, child of Mary, who felt our human woe. Oh, Savior, King of glory, who dost our weakness know. Bring us at length, we pray, to the bright courts of heaven and to the endless day. Such a beautiful statement of our weakness. And Jesus knows our weakness. He felt our human woe. Bring us at length, we pray, to the bright courts of heaven and to the endless day. Mourn, mourn over your sin. And ask God to forgive it and to make you bold in your loving of truth so that the world will have the witness and the light and the salt that Jesus has promised. In this church right now, there are many, many people who have committed the most vile sins. I'm the first. If you've been here a while, you know what my sins are and what they were. And there's absolutely no reason that we should be cowards and fearful. Because we are the living example, the living witness to God's forgiveness of the most vile sins. And so I think a lot of times the reason that we don't testify and speak the truth and love the truth is because we don't want people to know how wicked we were and still are. And as a pastor, I know your sins, right? And so why not be an example of the love of God the terrible sinners, terrible sinners. You know why God gives you older women and, and elders? Because they'll love you knowing your sin. 
And this can strengthen you that God loves you too.